Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is artist Celeste Butler. In the show, Butler talks about her upbringing in North Omaha and her exposure to the artistry of the women around her. She shares how her artistic craft working with fibre and textiles enables her to explore themes such as identity and the divine feminine, and to weave stories about history and spirituality. Butler also talks about her creative inspiration and how she came to be a quiltopreneur. Sometimes I'm weaving in lavender that I've grown in my garden. Sometimes I'm weaving in a little bit of sage that I've grown in my garden. But most of all, I'm weaving and sewing in love to go on and breathe life into the future in each and every piece that I create. Celeste Butler is a fiber and textile artist, quiltologist, ceramicist, and storyteller. Her family's southern roots and family history plays a major role in the works she creates, which can be seen in the themes of family, nature, landscapes, and her artistic process. Butler has been honored by her numerous community engagement projects as an artist, lecturer, and teacher, and been exhibited widely. Most recently, the Ebb and Flow Between Us exhibit at the Hoff Family Arts and Culture Center in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And now, for the very first time, Butler is in collaboration and partnership with Nebraska Furniture Mart to showcase, celebrate, and sell local, original, black art made in Nebraska. Celeste Butler, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. I'm happy to be here. I have read that you shared that some of your earliest memories are of spending hours playing with fabric and materials watching the women in your world sew, quilt, and crochet. And I'm just wondering if you could share some of those memories that stand out to you, some of those moments that really really stand out in your memory. Some of the most fondest memories that stick out in my mind is uh, two in particular, and one would be how the quilts hung on the clotheslines throughout the neighborhood and was totally, as a child, fascinated at the color arrangements and how they floated. They just floated with the air softly and smoothly throughout the air. And if it was a summer breeze that came through, it just looked like they were floating like magic carpets, just floating in the wind. It was just so enchanting to me. And that captured my young heart and my young mind. Those were my masterpieces, those were my Picassos. I didn't know who Picasso was other than in a book or a magazine. So those people were not attainable to me. I didn't have access to them. But I had access to all these women that were creating right in their own homes and right in my neighborhood. And that's what just kind of started me to my knowledge at my earliest age of being fascinated with textures and colors and patterns. And it has followed me all throughout my life. And just sitting at the feet of my mom as she crocheted and taught me how to crochet and as she knitted and taught me how to knit and as she sewed and taught me how to sew, I would spend hours up in the upper level of the house where there was this storage closet slash attic part and um, there was a big, I want to say cedar chest or one of those old traveling chests that they used to travel on the big um, steamships with. And that would be full of fabric and different memorabilia that she wanted to keep in there. And I would just play in that little spot for hours, just fumbling through the fabrics and dreaming about what all I can make with it. So those were moments to me that sealed these parts of time where I am today. I'm curious about the other women in your, in your world at that time. What were they doing and what did you experience in terms of perhaps literally sitting at their knees, watching them engage in the craft. Sometimes it was literally sitting in either on the floor next to them or at the table next to them or on a little stool or something next to them and them taking the time to show me and my little hands how to do the exact same thing. So I, they were teaching me along with the process of what they were doing themselves. A lot of what those women 
did was for utilitarian purposes. This is their lifestyle. This is how they lived. And everything before the industrial world took over was predominantly, especially here in the United States, made by hands. They were workers and they made pretty much everything. And it is devastating to this day to see how many jobs are lost and taken out of the country and everything is shipped back in when these things were literally made by just everyday people. If there was a tablecloth, generally somebody made that. If there was a tea towel, someone made that. If there was a dress, someone made that. All of these things generally were just made in a home for utilitarian purposes. And we've gotten so far removed from that process that we have to go somewhere to get these things now. And my, I won't say fear, I won't use the word fear. My concern is generations where we are now and the generations to come, if we're not feeding some of this back into our everyday society to the younger generation, when this is erased and we've seen evidence of it during the pandemic, how will they know to go get and make? They think it's still supposed to be brought in from someplace else. One of the things that I was able to do during the pandemic was people needed masks and there was a major shortage in masks. So a lot of those fabrics that went towards quilting or various different things that I would make with now became uh, masks. And then I was able to pay my bills nicely just off of making masks. I had several contracts come in that sustained me through some of the rough times. But that those, once again, are skills that are lost or set to the side because now in the society that we're in now, oftentimes people feel like I get paid and then I have to go buy it from somewhere. And I'm so glad that I had that experience of knowing that if it's, especially if it's made out of material or whatever, that I know how to go do that process from start to finish instead of having to go see where I can go purchase something at. Even as far as knitting a sweater, people think I have to go buy a sweater. In the day and time now, how many people still knit or crochet to make some of these things? And and they're beautiful. Handcrafted items are absolutely beautiful. What else was happening around you in your childhood at that time? It, It feels to me as if you talked about a lot of intriguing, creative, resolute women And I'm curious about what was the context of your childhood like for you? Once again, it was that industrial era of time. So, and a lot of jobs and a lot of maker jobs was still in the country. In my world, that's how people were moving. Everybody knew about Detroit and the the automaking industry and, and that type of thing. But we had a quite vibrant labor field here in Nebraska as well. So seeing people in movement with their bodies, like I remember my dad, I never in my life seen him get up at the last minute and just rush and go to work. My dad had this routine where he would get up, I'm sure more than an hour, maybe two hours before time for him to go to work. And he would ease into his morning with a cup of coffee and what he had for breakfast and his cigar or his cigarette or whatever he had, and just sit there. The news would be like playing in the background, and he just kind of quietly sat and eased into his morning. And I look at today or over time how we get up and we in this rush all of a sudden. Everything is rushed and whooshing. We're whooshing out the door and we're swishing the kids off and da-da. But I, I just, it was something rhythmic about how he got up and started his day slowly and with ease. And that was one of the things that was going on. And then when they went to work, it was, it was working. He worked in the packing houses. So they worked hard and it was labor intense and everything like that and come home and, you know, be grimy and dirty from, you know, all of that stuff from the packing houses. And my mom was a laborer. So I always seen her ironing and taking care of home and taking care of children and, you know, her process for leaving the goal to work in the morning as well. And her life, her morning started a little bit more 
busy or intense because even though a lot of women were out of the house working during that time, they were still very much responsible for all of the responsibilities and and duties of home, which was getting the kids, fixing meals and for everybody and preparing dinner. And, you know, that's quite a task to ask for a woman that's going out the door to go to work every day, that now you got to come home and still do all of these things as well. But I seen those women working with their hands and I seen them, they, they were just in their day-to-day movement. I think about my work in relationship to movement a lot as well, but their movement was so elegant to me. Sometimes just seeing them going to the store, they had on a beautiful dress and nice pair of heels. Sometimes they would you know, little hat on. They were elegant just going to the grocery store, you know? Did you once tell me that where you lived, you had a pretty robust garden uh, where you would grow your own vegetables and, and other foods? Yeah, that was my dad. My dad, coming from Arkansas, from the South, um, he's part of the half a million Black Americans that migrated north. So he was still very much that farmer and worked uh, with the land and with the, you know, in the earth and in the ground, grew a a huge garden every year. And everything we pretty much wanted to eat was right there in our yard. We had mulberry bushes. This was the address at 2806 Bristol Street that was part of the eminent domain and redlining that they took. And we had another property that set cat a corner from that house right across the street. Um, both of those houses were taken during the red line catastrophe. But the garden was epic. And everybody just about in the neighborhood had big gardens like that. One of the things that draws me into texture is because my dad was, was an earth man and worked with the yard and worked with the dirt and earth. I absorbed all those textures as well. The textures were inside the house. The textures were outside the, the house. He had everything in his garden, and in the evening, the gathering would happen, and whatever we were having for dinner, those vegetables and all of that stuff would become a part of our dinner with some type of staple of meat. But he spent hours out there in the yard just de-weeding and making sure it was watered, and that was his calm place. He, You could see that man really, really calm, really, really peaceful out there just working in his garden, and I loved it. I loved it. Um, on the house at 2806 Bristol Street before we moved in and they pruned things back because there was so much overgrowth had happened. When they thinned it back, we had approximately 15 peach trees, an apple tree. The property was surrounded by, I believe you call them mulberry, mulberry bushes that were well over six feet tall, a grapevine, rhubarb, and that was just on our property. And then the neighbors all had fruit trees all up and down the street. So whatever trees we didn't have in our yard of fruit, that's when the bartering system came back and forth, and then they would barter out for what they needed. I remember the Williams family that lived behind us in one of the uh, houses, they literally had, and people, you wouldn't think of, Omaha growing these type of trees because you rarely see fruit trees in Nebraska anymore, not unless you're out on one of the farms or anything like that. But to show you how rich the soil is, especially in North Omaha, the Williams had plum trees, apricot trees, pear trees, cherry trees. I don't think they had peaches. We had peaches in our yard. But those four I know they had in their yard for sure. So when you go to the store now, that's why it just blows my mind. If I go to the store and try to get a couple of apples, and I'm looking at 5 or $6, if not more, just for a couple of apples or orange or whatever, it blows my mind. It literally blows my mind because I know all of that stuff. That was our snack outside of the little the penny candy and stuff like that that we would go buy. Those were our day-to-day. We just go climb the tree and get our fruit. <laughs> I just want to invite you quickly to share an anecdote that we were talking about off mic, which is about your recollection of a bakery in North Omaha Mm -hmm. and especially what it is in particular you remember about that. Yeah. 
that was Sadie's Bakery. And Sadie's Bakery, the building is still there. I believe Miss Sadie lives in Vegas now with her son and, and family. And Miss Sadie's Bakery, everybody knew about her bakery. It's the building now that sits, still sits, and they still take very good care of that property and that business, although it's not there, but the building there is well-kept. It has Obama's signs freshly painted on it almost every year. It sits on the corner, I want to say 24th and it might be Parker, Burdett Parker, somewhere right there on, on the corner, and the building's still there. But Miss Sadie Bakery, I, it was something about that woman's recipe and something about the love that she got up and did every day. And literally the neighborhood with the richness of the aroma of what she was baking in that bakery, you could literally smell Miss Sadie's cookies and her pastries of what she made on the other end, far north of 24th Street. As you walked up to it, the smell got more and more intense. It was just unbelievable. And everybody would make that trip over to Miss Sadie. And there was a line and there was just nobody mind waiting because you knew the donuts just like they melted in your mouth. They were so fresh and so soft. (laughs) And the taste and the flavor. A lot of times we have food now and we're just eating it or consuming it. And the taste really isn't there anymore, you know? We remember what it used to taste like, and we eat it. I think we eat a lot of those things off memory, hoping to get that back again. But the flavor is not there. The, it's something that happened even in our spices have changed because you've been into that donut, you knew you had a mouthful of vanilla, a mouthful of the sugar, but it wasn't like a sugar that was so sweet, it was just like, it was just the right amount of everything. And I oftentimes wonder if her recipes have been preserved. The, the ironic part about that, and I didn't find out until years later, uh, the family that my daughter married into, Miss Sadie would be now my granddaughter's, I believe it's great-great-grandmother. So she's been out to Vegas a couple of times to visit with Grandma Sadie. It feels to me as you describe how you were raised and all of these experiences and and the exposure you had to the art and craft and the the growing and the scents and the textures and the tastes, it seems inevitable in some way that you would become an artist and a craftsperson working with material that is very tactile, very visible very textured, very colorful, really stimulates the senses. And I don't know if that makes sense to you. If you felt when you were young that you were always destined to be someone working so closely with art and material. It was so natural and so secondhand. I think being that young, I did not make the connection. Definitely worked so close to these things and they were always present in my life. I am not surprised that all of those things connect to what I do now and and how important texture is and how important color is and how important taste is. All of that, that, yes, definitely shaped and molded the artist that I am today. It, It absolutely even still feeds into the artist that I am today. Would you talk a little more about then the material and the fabrics and the fiber and, and the other materials that, that you do work with now and perhaps how that's evolved over time. One of the ways that it has evolved is my work is very connected to storytelling. There's always or generally always a past, present, and future contact in the stories that I tell through my art. I love working in nature. So my fabrics oftentimes are uh, hand-dyed fabrics, and I'm experimenting, even expanding that further to use natural dyes made from fruits and vegetables and all of that to dye my fabrics with. A couple of pieces over at the Cottonwood Hotel. I have three pieces over there, 
and one is made from rusted iron and and black walnut from this local area. And I mix those two together to create this ink and this dye. And one of the reasons, the inspiration behind that piece was when I took a tour of the Cottonwood when it was under construction a few years ago, and I went upstairs on the upper level where the event room is, and you look overlook East Omaha on that balcony part, and there was this old rusted drain. It was the original drain up there. I think they either covered it up or replaced it now. But there was this rusted drain and it was exposed. And I was fascinated at the craftsmanship of how all of that iron was handmade. And I'm looking at all of the aging that has happened to have the rust on that iron because it was a simple iron drain in the floor. And I wanted so bad to honor and celebrate the workers that worked back then that was connecting the past and me being the present and the future. I wanted to pull that connection together because a lot of those workers would not have had access to the hotel during those times. They were considered laborers. No doubt they had separate entrances where they had to enter and leave, and you only mingled with the guests if you were a part of this or that or the other as a worker. And that was my way of giving a head nod and paying homage to all the workers during that time that would not have had privileges to mingle with what they had called the aristocrats or anyone else. There's another piece in there that is dyed with indigo and linen. And that piece, too, gave nod to the women who worked on the hotel side that were that was taking care of and making sure people's linens were changed out, whether it was in the bedrooms or the suites or whether it's linens that they had at the table for napkins and that sort of thing. And the indigo was paying homage back to my mom and her lineage, which I trace back to Sierra Leone, where a lot of the indigo dyes and stuff would have came through. So I thought about the workers a lot in creating those pieces and how can I give a nod back to them and giving them space to live and breathe both past, present and future in that building. That's a historical building. And oftentimes the workers would not have been appreciated or would not have even gotten a simple thank you for the work that they had done and sometimes not even a tip, you know. So having pieces of art hanging in those places to just say, I see you, is important to me. Is there a good example of some work that you've created that might illustrate your process of creativity? how you work with material, and some of the stories you're trying to tell. The ebb and flow between us exhibit would be an excellent way to look into my process. The story and the storytelling behind that particular exhibit, which was called The Divine Feminine Goddess, that series of eight, there will be a total of 10 once it's completed. And it was created in roughly four weeks. And that's a lot of work for four weeks. I couldn't find my space and the energy, something about the energy and space. I I couldn't make the connection. And then I got sick several times during the process, as well as having a couple of friends that were like terminally ill. So a lot of that was in the front of my mind. And sometimes as an artist, oftentimes as an artist, you get blocks where you It's just space, and you have to honor that as well. Everything is not always about pushing something forward. And I love when when my artistic practice lives in an organic space. My intent was to have 10, ended up with eight of the Divine Feminine Goddess. The, The other two will be created over time, as well as a series called The Divine Masculine. Because I can't honor the woman without honoring the man, the male as well. And both have stories to tell and stories to hold. In that process of creating the divine feminine goddess, I knew I wanted each piece to stand on its own, but yet breathe and acknowledge and give life, especially to black women, and hold sacred spaces 
once again, another build, a st- historical building, Paces, another historical building was created during a time where we might not have been welcome in that space, you know? And if it was, it was, we had to be some type of laborer in that process. So honoring the space that it's in now and reverencing the space that they were in during the Pace exhibit to just honor us as Black women and say that we are enough, that we don't need to change anything else about us, that our the kinkiness of my hair is enough, the broadness of my nose is enough, the thickness of my lips is enough, the darkness of my skin or whatever hue that comes in for whatever woman is enough, the fullness of my hips and the thickness of my thighs, it's all enough. And I want us to get to a place where we don't feel like we need to alter that or challenge that for nobody to feel like we need to belong. And that's those pieces hold that sacred space for us. How did you take this passion and this exploration of the divine feminine in particular and turn that into art, into fabric, into craft? What were these eight forms? What did you create to explore and express that? They're just us. When I see them, I see myself. And I wanted anybody that stood before them to somehow find a piece of them in them, you didn't necessarily have to be a black woman to appreciate it. But because I am a black woman, I can only speak from that perception. When I was in that space and sometimes I would stand back and observe people observing the divine feminine goddess and from the little kids to grown people was so in awe and so appreciative of it and having conversation with even people that stood there, it served its purpose of, Letting whoever stood there see that they were enough. I celebrated me and I wanted you to celebrate you, whichever way you naturally were. If you decide you want to change something, I can celebrate that as well. But if you decide not to, for whatever reason, that the way you were designed and the way you were made, I want to appreciate that. I don't want us all to walk around and look like cookie cutters, you know? When I look across the room and I see you, Stuart, I want to recognize that that's you. And I hope that I never make anyone feel like they need to change something for me. Whichever way you are today, that you are more than enough. And I want who's ever looking at me or experiencing me or my art to understand that I, too, am enough. And that's what those pieces embody, just the enoughness of us as human beings. If I was standing in front of those pieces now, what would I actually be looking at? Quilts? Quilts. 3D quilts. And they were suspended from, what do you call these, these, the rafters of the ceilings? They were suspended, so they were elevated up. Um, And you have to, it's almost, it was almost like a level of reverence um, to to be in place with them, to feel the energy of them. Could you actually describe like the, the physicality of these pieces and what you did to actually create them? A lot of my creation, Stuart, happens in my mind. My mind is moving. It's absorbing. Even when I came into the room space here, the first thing I did was walked over to these pads that you have on the door for to buffer the sound and touched them. My hands immediately went to them. And then my mind sunk in my hand sunk in it was almost like if you if you take something and scan it my hand and my mind was scanning the materials there and that's just how my mind works <laughs> something as simple as that drew me to it and I had to touch it and my whole body literally scanned it and my mind in that moment was saying oh, okay that's fabric that's foam you know so those were made out of various different fabrics uh, rings, jewelry, one of the pieces, well, I think all of them, pretty sure all of them, is the braids that hung and extends off the original boundaries of the quilt. So they extend it almost down to the floor on most of the pieces. That's a twofold purpose. Anytime you see my work 
and it's not in the borders of that quilt and something extends off, that is a nod to me to say my work is to be continued. It's a way of not finalizing anything. And I love the flows off of. So the burlap that you see in those pieces that was woven into each one of the braids and the locks that flowed off of those quilts, the burlap was recycled from Hardy's Coffee on North 30th Street. And they so graciously, when I come, I'm like, what are you doing with those bags? <laughs> it's like, you can have them if you want. I'm like, okay, cool. And here I am with this great big old bags full of giant burlap coffee bags, toting them to my car. And I made that trip, I want to say at least three or four times. And I still have burlap, which I'll do some other things with. But it, just to be able to pull, once again, that's that childhood memory that thinks like that. So I go back to Hardy's to get these recycled bags because, once again, this is stuff within my area. I can very easily go to Amazon or Hancock or jo- Joanne's Fabric or whatever the name, Michael's or whoever, and buy all these fabrics. But it's something rich in curating these fabrics from where I live and around the area that I am in and out of every day. And then somehow curating and weaving and sewing these fabrics together to all communicate to tell a story. And that brings me so much joy, knowing that this was something they would have discarded and finding another purpose for it in an artistic realm. I'm also in conversation with myself a lot about just making sure I'm not wasteful. I don't like to be wasteful. I came from that period where we weren't wasteful. We utilized everything, even if it was an old coffee can. We utilized and reused and repurposed a lot of things before this whole thing is now. It's foo-foo now. You know, oh, I repurposed. Oh, I d-. we should already be doing that. No judgment, but we, if we're going to live in this world and leave it a be- better place, we should be doing that anyways. I like how you are moved by bigger issues. And you've talked about narrative, and I've heard you say that your fiber and textile art is a way to preserve American history in Nebraska and a way of paying homage to those women who broke down barriers in life. And I wonder if you could share a little bit more about that and some of the issues or stories or topics or histories that you're trying to explore and also to preserve and share through your art? I'm working with a lot of vintage fabrics that have been donated to me. And some of those fabrics are from people's grandmothers that used to sew. And they want so desperately for me to have those fabrics. Grandma didn't get a chance, just like in my lifetime, I won't get a chance to use all those fabrics and textiles. So they'll eventually go on to someone else to, and hopefully they'll find other resources and ways to create and preserve from those. But what happens and in my mind is when those fabrics, I cherish them for one, when they're donated to me and they're absolutely beautiful. And if fabrics and textiles are stored properly, they'll last several lifetimes without being dry rotted or compromised in any way. So when I'm working with those fabrics, Oftentimes, I think that woman or whoever had it didn't necessarily have to be a woman. She had a purpose for that fabric. Either she was going to make a dress or something for her home or whatever. And time, space and time happened. She didn't get a chance to. So even though I don't know her or never met her, someone thought enough of me and what I do that they wanted their grandparents' fabrics preserved. And a lot of those fabrics are woven into what I do now. So that's past and present. My work will live on into the future. So whatever her story was, it is now woven into mine. And here's the thing that I think about often. A lot of those fabrics came from a place in time when my world may not have collided with that woman's world. Or they saw me or the people like me as other. I just wove us together in peace and love. I hope that fixed something. I hope the love that I weave into that peace. She might, that woman might not have wanted me to go to school with her. That woman might not have wanted me to live next door to her. 
that woman or that woman's family may not have wanted me to dine in the same restaurant or ride on the same bus. But right now in the present, I get to give her story a new ending. I get to give my story a new ending because you're woven into this art now. And we both are going into the future, whether we want to or not. And on my end, I'm weaving in love. On my end, I'm sewing in love. I pray over my pieces. Sometimes I'm weaving in lavender that I've grown in my garden. Sometimes I'm weaving in a little bit of sage that I've grown in my garden. But most of all, I'm weaving and sewing in love to go on and breathe life into the future in each and every piece that I create. And I'm wondering if there is a traditional or non-traditional faith practice or spiritual philosophy that, that you observe and you try to inculcate in the work that you uh, are making. It most definitely is. I don't practice a, what they would consider a traditional religion. I believe that I am responsible to give and receive love. And my practice is a practice where I am in communication with my ancestors every day. And they are so connected to me, and I am so protected, and I am so grateful. And I believe in the practice of do harm to nobody. If you have to protect yourself for a life-threatening situation, that's different. That's something in the moment you have to do what you have to do. I just want to operate in love. I want my, my pieces that I create. I want the art that I create, that to be woven to each and every piece. Love will heal the world if we let it. It is that sap. It is that ointment. But we have to get back to exercising that as well. It feels as if much of your work is not only you practicing that for yourself, but it also feels like an invitation. It most certainly is an invitation. Because oftentimes what we see is what we emulate, right? From our childhood, they didn't know how to eat. We didn't know how to eat as a child. We kept seeing them move their lips around and look like they was enjoying it. <laughs> we figured, hey, there's a spoon over there. Let me figure out how to grab that. Okay. And then you see they're putting it to their lip. Okay. Somewhere on my face. Okay. And you see that child, the, the spoon is way over here on the jaw. You know, they had to practice that. And then they realized nobody was going to reach for it and put it in their mouth no more. They figured out how to get it there. Whether they gathered it up with the, the tips of their fingers and stuck it in there or whether they learned how to use that utensil, they figured out, okay, if I do this and this, then I'm going to get the same thing that they're getting over there. So it's, a, it's the same thing. It's a practice. If we want that job or we want to be good at that job, what do we do? We go practice. And it's the same equation. I don't see it as any, uh, anything different than anything that I really, 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 really want passionately or bad enough. I find out how and then I be about my business. I go about my business and making sure that I could I understand that and I'm able to do that. We've been talking about the nobility of the stories you're telling and the craft that you're practicing and the spirituality of it. But you also call yourself a quilt quiltpreneur. Quiltpreneur. Quiltpreneur, thank you which is a sort of blending of language around um, your art, but also entrepreneurship as mm -hmm. well, which in some ways speaks to the, the business mm -hmm. of doing this. So I am curious about those aspects of what you need to do as a, a human being practically having to live in the world that we live in today. How do you think about those business, those commercial aspects of doing what it is that you do given you know, some of the really remarkable and noble elements of, of the craft itself? Well, I'll put it like this, Stuart, and I have to be authentic because sometimes the business part is very confusing to me, and I'm learning as I grow, and I'm learning as I go. Because business was not something that was handed down to me or running my own business, and oper although I've always done that throughout the course of my life. I've done one business or the other. And so 
I lean on people who are definitely smarter than me that I know I can go to and ask those questions. And sometimes it's a matter of I fumbled that and I know not to do that again. So that on that side, I'm on the ground learning. I'm not stupid, I'm not ignorant, and I'm definitely not dumb, but I'm willing to learn. And sometimes you have to just humble yourself about the things that you don't know and be willing to learn those things. And that's the business side, that's the entrepreneur side. When you're first generation trying to run a business, trying to operate a business, trying to build on that business, you don't know everything. So I'm open to those conversations of how to build it and make it better. I know what I know based on the mistakes that I've made. And I don't know if that's good, bad, or indifferent, but I know not to do those no more. <laughs> so I'm open. I'm like someone who wants to assist me or advise me or be a part of a advisory team for me to help me do things better and more uh, have that operation side flow a lot smoother. I'm open to that. I welcome that and I'm open to that. Everybody can, if you're not learning And uh, life in the world to me has been my oyster and it has been my university. And I'm just not afraid to say what I don't know and what I don't understand. And I'm not afraid and I don't think it's an embarrassment to ask for help when you need help. And and I'm okay with that. I love being the artist. So sometimes I struggle with the business side. And I and I like I said, and I do have to reach out to various different ones that I trust to to guide me in that aspect. I'm curious about how you have journeyed with your art practice. If you have always looked to learn from others and to teach yourself the craft of what you do, and how you've gone about that, and whether or not you have actually reached out to other experts or some other form of formal training to enhance the craft that you practice? I do indulge in different workshops when I have the chance to, to people that, um, uh, a couple of years ago, I did uh, some indigo, indigo dyeing at a workshop and that was very enriching and learning. And I, I love those type of things because I know exactly what I want. I'm not necessarily... Well, I don't don't have the time for one to go and sit in university for the next four years, five years to learn something. So those things that I know that I want to learn or that will help enrich my process and my practice, I'll try to find workshops that centered around specifically that to help grow and to help enrich my practice right now. I spent a lot of time over at Metro Community College North Campus because that is such a hidden jewel over there smack dab in our North Omaha community. And I work in the prototype lab a lot uh, and I have learned a lot over there. I have also introduced laser cutting in some of my work. I've been over there recently creating uh, wood stamps so that I can, when I hand dye my fabrics, I can also put my own unique stamps on various different pieces. All of that intrigues me because what it does is it creates original work. If I create my own hand stamps, nobody has that stamp. And I'm I'm designing, not I'm designing my own fabrics with that. I've done it before, but it's faster and more precise using a laser cutter to do it. And I'm absolutely fascinated about uh, being over there when I can go over there and spend, you know, a few hours a week creating and designing various different products that I want to use that puts that signature stamp on the work that I do. How has your art changed who you are or influenced who you are? Oh, wow. That is such an amazing an interesting question, and I'm glad you really, really asked that one. My throat chakras, as well as some of the other chakras in my body, I know were locked and closed because of trauma and traumas that have happened throughout life. And my throat chakra, especially, what art and my practice has done was allowed me to have a voice through my work. 
And now that I feel like my throat chakra is open, I'm able to speak more. Although I could speak before about pretty much anything, but I know the things that would cause me to shut down before and not speak because of trauma, it has been that type of therapy for me. My art and my art practice have given my voice back. And I'm so grateful for that. That in itself is epic. I'm curious how you feel about being authentic in the way you're living your life and, and doing what you were meant to do with this really broad artistic practice you have. But also if you can hear your ancestors telling you this is the path you should be on and, and we're here to support you because you're doing the thing that you need to be doing. It is definitely that full circle experience and they are constantly present, guiding and holding the light on the path for me. And I know I'm on it. And the practice of what I do is not just the art, it's a lifestyle. That's why I use the term or the words quiltopreneur. It's a word that I merge two words together to not only speak about my practice, but to speak about my lifestyle, as well as the quiltologist. I always knew when I was talking about creating and merging these words together that my practice and my life, I didn't want to live a life over here and separate over here. I wanted to intertwine it as a lifestyle. When you hear those words and you see me, the relationship is not just she's a quilter. I'm a quiltologist because this is my life. This is my practice of working with fiber and textiles and creating stories and connecting the past, the present, and the future. It is all encompassed into one. And I feel comfortable in living that lifestyle. And it's a lifestyle for me. Is there a story or an issue that you that is burning inside you that you have yet to tackle with your craft? And it's something that you know you you need to artistically express? I never thought about it in those terms, but I, I will definitely keep it in space. And I never thought about telling it from a story's perspective. I more so thought about living it. How do I live that life as a fiber and textile artist? How do I live that life as a quilter and a storyteller? How do so I never thought about it in context of telling the story. But it's obviously there. And and before I dismiss, I would be remiss not to just say thank you to everybody, both in Nebraska, outside of Nebraska, that have been a part of my supportive process. And to start naming names, it would be too big and too vast. But just want to make sure that I did not end this conversation and let the audience know that whether you supported me by dropping fabric, anonymous fabric on my porch, whether you've left me a donation, whether you've paid for expenses for me to travel and experience workshops and, and research or, or just said an encouraging, encouraging word or left flowers on my porch. and The list is endless. Phone calls, text messages, all of those things. I am forever grateful. I don't take for granted the things that people do for me. I don't take for granted that sometimes I'm not in a room, but someone else is at the table and they mention my name for a project or for a commission and those things like that. That's how my lifestyle has been supported. And I'm, I'm forever, forever grateful for that. I'm grateful for right now in my life that I'm living the life that I want to live and the way I designed it and seen it in my head. And I know that not only my ancestors are watching out for me, but people that I will never know their name have done some amazing things for me. And, and because of that, and because of you, I'm here today. I stand in sheer gratitude. And here's one little small thing. And it may not be small, because I get to live the life that I dreamed about, Someone gets to see me live this life and know that it's possible. But you're going to have to be true to yourself. 
it's a lot of sacrifice to go with. It's not all glitz and glamour. Sometimes the finances aren't there, especially as an artist. And I'm in that in-between stage trying to figure out this, trying to, trying to juggle, you know. It's not all glitz. I'm not going to sit here and tell anybody that it's all glitz and glamour. There's some rough spots. And that's why a lot of my work, even with the um, ebb and flow between us, it was important for me to leave pieces of each one of those goddesses unfinished or the appearance of unfinished because I'm so over curated experiences that everything has to be perfect. And as a human being, I don't want people to look at me and say, oh, she's so perfect. She's unattainable. Oh, she's so perfect. She's got it all together. I am not. I'm absolutely not. I work on me every day. But when you see my work and you see pieces of it that appears in unfinished states, that's intentional because that's me living my life as a quiltologist, as a quiltopreneur, and I'm trying to figure things out along the way. Oftentimes, we comb our hair a certain way, and we got on all the lipstick and this, and we appear before the world just absolutely perfect. And I want to let people know it's okay. It's okay to not be always polished and finished. That's too much stress. Sometimes we put so much emphasis on all of this stuff being polished and shiny before the world. But the one thing that my work speaks universally is that you get to show up as you. And it's my job not to judge you in that. It's my job and my responsibility to love you in that, in that or through that. And that's not always an easy thing to do because we want people to fit into our boxes. My guest today has been the artist, quotologist, Celeste Butler. Celeste, thank you so much for sharing a little about your life and about your art and about what what influences you. It's just been really wonderful to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.